Hello, everyone. This is Aspet Bedrosian. And this is Hovik Manucharyan. And we are doing a daily touch base with Gev Iskadjian on the latest conditions during the Artsakh blockade. Gev is with the ANC in Artsakh, Nagorno-Karabakh, and he lives in Stepanagerd. Today is January 22, 2023. Hey, Gev. I read earlier this morning that gas supply to Artsakh was cut off again by Azerbaijan. Tell us a little more about this. I heard about this almost 12 hours ago at this point. Yeah, I think, look, it's important to note, and I'm sure you guys have realized it too, uh, they're doing this thing where they're cutting off the gas. So it was gone for the good part of yesterday and today. What I've noticed is they're cutting off the gas intermittently. So for like 12 hours, they'll cut it off. In the middle of the night, they'll turn it back on for a little bit. Um, But by the time everybody gets word of it, by the time they can restart their heating generators, by the time people can fill up their cars, it's cut off again. And I think this is an interesting pattern to look at as we move forward, because what I think... To make it completely unreliable. Absolutely. And I also think that the play here is to wean the population off gas usage, so to make it cold, to make it difficult, all that stuff... But also for them to have the space later on, I'm talking about the Azeri government, to come and say, well, you know, the gas wasn't fully cut off. We turned it back on. But they're creating these miserable conditions, turning it back on for a couple of hours. And uh, I don't know if folks are aware, but for an apartment building, let's say, when the gas turns back on, like when we get gas flowing into the country, it's not like this uh, simultaneous action that happens where right away all the houses and all the uh, apartments get gas. It takes like hours for it to go through the system for Mm -hmm. it to work. So I can tell you guys something interesting. Like today, it flows a little quicker to the gas stations. The way I found out that it was turned back on, and I'm sure it's going to turn back off in a couple of hours because that's been the pattern throughout the week. I was coming back home and then I saw this massive line at one of the gas stations and someone's like, oh, the gas must be back on. And I was like, well, the building we were at didn't have any right now. And they're like, yes, because it takes hours for it to reach homes where it's a little quicker for it to reach some of the gas stations. How is, is this affecting the electricity situation? What it does is, and we've mentioned this before, the less gas that we have, the more people rely on electric heating. Um, and the more that people rely on electric heating, the electricity lines take a toll. So our grid gets completely screwed in this sense. Look, there's this other pattern that's been occurring. As people have been like following the podcast, they'll know that first week it was two hours. Mm-hmm. The second week, it was three hours. The third week, it was two installments of three hours. And there are talks that this week, it's going to be two installments of four hours. So we're talking about eight hours during the day. So a third of your day without power. Yeah. And and one of the worst parts of it is when you don't have electricity and you don't have gas and the times they cut off the electricity end up being like nighttime when people come home, like let's say, you know, six to 10 from eight to 12 that, you know, families are home, families are together. They need to be heating their homes. It's cut off during those hours. And you have the situation now, especially the last two days where We neither have gas or electricity. Yeah. Gev, I was reading an article with the mayor of a village in the Askeran region yesterday. He was saying that we know all this stuff is going down, but life hasn't stopped here. We're going on with our lives. You know, we didn't record yesterday, and that was because you were traveling through the Askeran region, of all things. Can you share your impressions of life over there right now? 
Yeah, look, one thing I'll say, it's kind of ingrained in the psyche of our is that, you know, no matter how tough things get, they brave this. But I want to make sure that we don't underestimate the difficulties that people have. You've got large families. Uh, you've got people that can't guarantee the fact that their kids aren't going to be freezing at night, that, uh, you know, that they have regular gas to cook with, to drive, to, to meet all these necessary things. And I can tell you, I see the toll on people. The biggest fear, I think, for the human psyche is uncertainty. And Azerbaijan knows that. And that is the sense they're trying to create. All that said, at the same time, I, I can tell you uh, something that's a little interesting. We're used to the fact that city centers are supposed to be like more bustling with more resources and all that stuff. Interestingly enough, in a blockade, uh, when you go through some of these villages and stuff, they're a little more prepared than we are in the city. As you guys know, like I'm in Stepanakert, but as I've gone to a few of these villages in the past few days, I get the sense that, one, they're more tied to the agricultural lands, right? Uh, a lot of them have their own fields and stuff. Uh, two, they're more used to, especially for the winter months, like conserving food, putting canning food, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So in certain regards, they're actually more prepared than the city because the city relies on the shops and the stores and, you know, the, or the import of stuff coming in all the time, whereas some of the villages are a little more self-sustaining. Yeah, on top of that, I'll tell you, right? And, and what else I kind of noticed talking to some of folks, so as you guys know, it's tough to even get like eggs or the most basic food necessities here. Talking to some folks in the villages, they'll tell me like, you know, my brother is in Askeran or my aunt's in Stepanakit or my aunt's in the city, blah, blah, blah. And it's from the villages that they're kind of sending these little care packages to folks in the cities because the villages, they have their own chickens. They have livestock. They have some of those self-sustaining things that we talk about. Yeah. But I will tell you just really quickly to add on to that, that's going to take a hit as well. Because I was speaking to some farmers, some folks that deal with livestock and stuff, and they're like, look, it's good. We've got this livestock. We've got pigs, cows, uh, sheep, all that stuff. But we're getting to the point where we can't feed them. And that's going to be a bigger problem because we were importing a lot of the feed that they use. And that's going to snowball into like food scarcity issues. That's not good. Yeah. I was going to say the same thing. I think that's the reason that the commercial poultry farms aren't producing that much is exactly because there is lack of feed. Yes. Yes. Hey guys, one pet peeve. I don't know if it's a pet peeve, but it's some, you know, I could actually, uh, you know, smash my uh, <laughs> teacup right now. Like, you know, thinking about it is that uh, when I listen to sometimes us discussing this situation in a very calm manner, I, I feel very guilty because I feel like we're normalizing this. I know we're not trying to do that, but just the fact that we can, academically talk and the fact that you're still breathing and you're still talking to us Gev, that means you're you know you're surviving right and so what's the big deal i i almost feel like uh we need to shout louder from the rooftops or something but how dire is the situation i mean tell us some more about your you know regular yeah. contacts with people so let me let me say this this might be the bluntest take i've had you know on, on this podcast so far but my biggest fear isn't necessarily the blockade, and I'll tell you why, um, and I'll tell you why it feeds into sometimes uh, people from the ground saying, and I think they're trying to quell this fear as well, people saying, you know, we'll tough it out, been through, you know, hardship, blah, blah, blah. 
my biggest fear is that one, this is really tough. No matter what, I know people are strong. I know that they're kind of surviving in any way they can to this. But there is a fear, even among the people that are saying, like, we can tough this out for the rest of the populace. Because as we mentioned just earlier, the sense of uncertainty that Azerbaijan is creating, their end goal isn't this blockade. Their end goal is ethnic cleansing, right? So I think there's this unspoken fear amongst people that if we talk about it more, the second that, let's say, hypothetically, this blockade lifts, people have been through hell for the last month and a half. They don't want folks to leave. We need to make sure that there's a native Armenian population here. And I think psychologically, to some sense, it's tied in with that. But yeah. as folks are saying this, it's absolutely imperative that, that we can keep in mind that it is very tough here. It's very tough on every segment of the population. We've got all our kindergarten kids, all our school kids, starting from last week, haven't been to school because we can't guarantee proper heating. We can't guarantee that we can supply the school cafeterias with lunches. We, we have insulin and medicine shortages. So take what the folks are saying with the grain of sand, because, you know, the folks here are really tough. Folks here take care of each other. But uh, it is a difficult situation. Yeah, I completely agree. Though I think that it's one thing to present a strong facade to your own people and internally. For instance, I was listening to this podcast, and with all my due respect to the people being interviewed, but they asked one of the interviewees, they said, you know, how do you feel like, I mean, what, you, don't have, uh, you don't have electricity, you don't have gas, uh, it must be terrible. And the person responded, well, you know, yeah, but we're strong and the temperature is only zero degrees Celsius, so uh, it's not <laughs> that bad. I mean, that bad compared to L.A., it's, yeah. it's probably not accurate. So there's lack of context. And I think that people do want to present a strong and courageous mm-hmm. face of resistance, especially when you're you know, dealing with Azerbaijanis. But I think it's also important for our listeners to recognize that this is a very dire situation. Yeah, Hovig, I don't care what they say and how strong they are, but taking showers in zero degree temperature is not fun. Aspet, uh, you know, and, and they're not eating uh, all day. Fuck showers. I mean, Aspet, people people aren't eating. Children, like, you know, there right. are reports of children in stores not having baby food formula. People That's right. make makeshift baby formula out of uh, flour and sugar. I mean, this is a horrible, horrible This situation. is a I very mean, tough time. Fuck showers, man. I mean, this is like, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. I could go without showers for about a month. I cannot go without like knowing that I'm feeding, am I feeding my baby the correct you know, uh, formula? Is my baby developing? I think that's a very important issue to communicate. Sorry for, yeah. th- thank you for letting me vent on here, but uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a situation that needs to be presented properly when talking to, especially externally. Absolutely. And just quickly, I would add that, look, a lot of the folks that end up talking to or folks speak to, even myself, I'm a working professional here. And my job, because my family's back in LA or or whatever it is, is myself. And I can sustain myself and I don't get too worried. But if I had young children here, if I had babies, if if I was speaking to someone that's like, my wife's about to have a kid, I need to find some gasoline because at any time my car operates off gasoline at any time my wife is about to have a kid i don't know if i can make it to the hospital so there are all those concerns that come tied and i think you know part of the problem is like when we interview folks and stuff we interview folks from the journalistic world or the professional world um, but the difficulties for the layman for the common people here are much greater 
Yeah. Okay. A freezing shower is the easiest part of this. Yes, unfortunately. But, though that's not fun too, all that. <laughs> but yes, <laughs> yeah. absolutely. Hovig, yesterday you interviewed Medakse Agopian in episode 213 of our podcast. She's a member of the Justice Party, Artarutun, in the Artsakh Parliament. I wasn't able to record that with you. Um, what were her thoughts about this blockade and the current events? Uh, so I'll begin with the negative. I mean, speaking to her about this really communicated that. So if uh, I would encourage people to listen to her, basically she says that the current situation is really hell. I mean, it's something that should not be normalized. But the people of Artsakh, the only reason that people of Artsakh are doing this and are consciously toughing it out, you know, the only goal is not to lose Artsakh as a homeland for the Armenian people, and they rely on the support of the entire Armenian diaspora. They rely on the support of Armenians in Armenia. And I think it's very important to communicate that. So they are essentially the, unfortunately, the human uh, shields. They're, they're our fourth post right now, and they're taking all the hits for the rest of the Armenian nation. That's why it disgusts me. I want to puke when I see pictures of just yesterday, Nikol Pashinyan and Alan Simonian dancing in Ijevan. That's after the disaster in uh, the village of Azad when, where 15 people burned alive, 15 of our young conscripts burned alive. I think those are the things that are sort of really when people in Artsakh also see, it can get them worse than any, uh, any Azari propaganda, any Azari deprivation of gas or electricity. The positive aspect, and also, you know, uh, as a parent, I can really feel what Metaxia is going through as well because her son is in Yerevan. He's one of the group of children that still has not been able to make it back. And I can imagine as a parent, like seeing that picture of the, the, the bus of children that were, the group of children that were able to make it back, being humiliated, being tortured, being called slurs, and being harassed by the Azerbaijani military while they were trying to just reunite with their family. Uh, so I asked her, like, you know, what do you think if the opportunity affords itself, would you bring your son back? And she said, Without a single doubt, I would, because of that intention, you know, even if her son faces that risk, even uh, her son may not get the, the, you know, the nutrition or whatever, at least they're uh, together as a family. I mean, there, there's been more than a month when these children haven't seen their parents, and these are the important times of their development. And on the most positive aspect of it, basically, she said that over the last few weeks, in the at least the political arena of Artsakh, there has been less... Uh, a little bit less anxiety that due to this adversity that they're facing, that their government may go to some horrible compromise behind their back uh, solely due to the situation. Uh, and that sort of, you know, made me feel a little bit better. Although, you know, I don't know how much the autopsies can hold on. This is uh, That's I mean, another conversation. And it's shocking for people to think that their governments are routinely going behind their backs and doing things that they don't approve. Well, and, we have and, many examples to follow. But, of course. Uh, I mean, just, you know, I, I, yeah, that's all I can say on this topic. Okay, we're done for today. Let's talk tomorrow, Gev. Sounds good. We'll be back on. All right. More power to you, man. All right. 